Dear friends in Jesus, pride goes before the fall, the saying goes. Arrogance and overconfidence are, are dangerous quality traits that many, if not all of us, have to wrestle with at times. But perhaps just as dangerous is a, a, a sense of inadequacy, feeling unfit, unqualified to carry out a role or to fulfill a task to which the Lord has called us or assigned us. And perhaps this often then leads to a certain paralysis, a failure to act, missed opportunities. Maybe this is no more common for us as Christians than when it comes to that task to which the Lord has called and assigned each of us and that is to serve as his witnesses, to testify of him and what he has done for us and others to others. As someone has once said, if the church militant doesn't even take the field, it's an automatic forfeit. So why don't more of us take the field more often? Perhaps it's because you know, some feel, well, that's, that's what you know, we we've hired the professionals for, right? We've got the pastors, we've got the teachers, like that, that, that's their job. Right? Others perhaps have felt, well, you know what, God only calls us to serve and function really in, our, in our, that sweet spot, that unique role or two that, that he has uniquely gifted us and, and called us to. And the Bible says that the Lord has only given some to be evangelists after all. Being able to, to talk to a stranger, to a to an unbeliever and an unchurched person about Jesus and the gospel, that's a unique gift. And only, only a few have it. And while there may be a certain hint of truth to a couple of these things, the fact of the matter is that just because their name isn't the Apostle Paul or the prophet Elisha doesn't get the rest of us off the hook. You will be my witnesses, Jesus said. The Apostle Paul says this, we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. And the Bible gives this charge, see to it, that no one misses the grace of God. That being said, not all of us are rock star missionaries. None of us has the, the gifts of the Apostle Paul or perhaps the, the evangelist Philip, and, and, and nor does the Lord necessarily expect each one of us to have them. And that's what makes this morning's lesson so inspiring, so empowering. For those of us who are second or third or tenth rate witnesses, there's a lot to be learned from the servant girl in this morning's lesson. So try to put yourself back there a little bit. Imagine that servant girl. She must have felt among the least qualified to serve as an agent of Almighty God to effect the conversion of her pagan, her foreign slave master. I mean, after all, she was a mere slave girl. The, the man, her master, Naaman, told her what to do, not the other way around. She was in no position to, to lend him advice or to give him counsel. He was the guy with all the connections, all the authority, all the power, all the influence. Why would she even think that he would listen to what she had to say? 
And then you add to that the fact that, again, put yourself in her shoes. Imagine if you had some information that just might benefit your master. You, you might be tempted to keep that rather close to the vest. I mean, why would you, why would you help this guy? A guy who, for all practical purposes, had kidnapped you and forced you into slave labor. And yet, in spite of what she may have had run through her head, in spite of what we might think, she spoke up. There wasn't a whole lot that she could do. She certainly didn't have all the answers. She did not have the power to heal, but she knew someone who did. And she knew that Naaman didn't know who and what she knew. And so she spoke up. She offered the advice. She made the suggestion. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. What's fascinating is that in spite of what she may have feared or we might think, we're not given any indication that Naaman at all hesitated at the idea. It's it's more likely that at this point Naaman had, had done everything that he possibly knew to do. He had tapped every resource at his disposal. And at this point, he was out of options. He was at his wit's end. And the hope that this girl extended to him, the hope that there just might be something that could still be done, that there just might be someone that still might be able to do something, was, was something he was quick to act on. And so, of course, we know the rest of the story. The, the Lord, in his grace, worked a miracle on Naaman's behalf, as Elisha tells him to go wash seven times in the Jordan River, and and the Lord cleanses him of his leprosy, ridding his body of this just debilitating, agonizing disease, and even more than that, using this entire thing to effect saving faith in the heart of Naaman, leading him to realize and confess the Lord as his Savior God. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. And and vowing later in this chapter, your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. Recently, I was sitting at the kitchen table of Pastor Peter Reed and his wife Marlis. They currently serve in Midland, Texas. My wife and I earlier this summer got to spend a few days over there. Pastor Reed and his wife Marlis had served for about a decade in the country of Indonesia as missionaries um, prior to 9-11, shortly after, whisk, after which they were whisked out of harm's way um, very quickly. Uh, Indonesia is a predominantly Muslim country where it is illegal for a Christian to initiate a conversation about Jesus or the gospel with a non-Christian. In order for that conversation to happen, it has to be initiated by the non-Christian. But how to get that to happen? So, Pastor Reed and Marlis, you know how, and now I have to include us couples sometimes do, right? Just telling stories, you're tripping over each other and telling different parts of the stories. They, with tears in their eyes, sharing a story about a dear friend of theirs named Augustine. Augustine was a, an Indonesian lady um, who, who served in the school that Marlis also served in. Augustine was not the, 
principal or the superintendent. Augustine was not a lead teacher in one of the classrooms. He was not the office manager. Augustine was a, a, a TA, a teacher's assistant, in one of the classrooms. And for years and years and years, she just lived a humble life of service to the Lord, to that school, to the other um, staff, and of course to her students and her classes. Well, the read said that shortly before, just a few weeks before 9-11, Augustine suffered a stroke, and she was rushed to the hospital. And the superintendent of the school reached out to Marlis asking if Pastor Reed might just do a favor and go visit her in the hospital, and of course he did. Shortly afterwards, she passed away. And the staff at the school was just absolutely heartbroken at the loss of their dear friend Augustine. And so the superintendent reached out to Marlis again, asking for a favor, wondering if, if Pastor Reed just might speak to the staff because he didn't know how to and he didn't want to have to deal with the grief of the staff. And of course, Pastor Reed was quick to accept that offer. So he said he entered into a large room that morning and there were about 100 people, most of them Muslim, who with you know, open ears and even open hearts, the... Pastor Reed passed around a, a little stone and he asked each person in the room as they held that stone to, to just share a little memory about their friend Augustine. And as that stone made its way around the room, each person just told a little story about Augustine had, had been there for them, how she would just regularly just kind of pray for them or, or with them how Augustine would do little acts of kindness, sometimes big acts of kindness, actually help pay for one of, one of the staff members' surgeries when their own Muslim family would not help pay for it. How she would often just be there for them, encouraging them, um, comforting them in difficult times in their life, and each one of them also acknowledging the faith, the Christian faith, the faith of Augustine, her faith in her Jesus, as each one of them put it. And Pastor Reed had the opportunity that morning to share more with this room full of Muslims about Augustine's Jesus. Augustine's Jesus, who is eternal God, who came into this world and took on human flesh and blood, placed himself underneath the law of God, not, not just to show us what to do, not just to give us an example, but to fulfill it, to earn our righteousness, to become our holiness before our God. Augustine's Jesus who took our sin, her sin, their sin, the world's sin upon himself and, and suffered and died and paid for that in full upon the cross, winning forgiveness. Augustine's Jesus who three days later defeated death with his physical resurrection from the grave, promising that through faith in him we too have life eternal. Pastor Reed said that that morning he had the opportunity to witness to more Muslims at any one time than he had in his entire decade of ministry there in Indonesia, that this was an opportunity that was a lifetime in the making. And not his lifetime, but Augustine's lifetime in the making. Now, did Augustine know the Bible as well as Pastor Reed? Could she verbalize the truths of the gospel as powerfully, as clearly as Pastor Reed? Maybe not, probably not. But just like that servant girl did in the life of Naaman for Elisha, Augustine had done in the lives of 
the people at that school setting up an opportunity for Pastor Reed. Opportunities that neither the prophet Elisha nor Pastor Reed would have ever had otherwise. So there are some here in the room who are full-time called pastors and teachers. There are some among you who prayerfully will be future pastor, teacher, evangelist, missionary, outreach team member. And if so, God be praised. The harvest is plentiful, and believe me, the workers, we know, they are few. But many of us are not and will never be. And yet each one of us can be like the servant girl or like Augustine. Each one of us can live a life of humble service to the Lord and to those that God's placed around us in our lives. Each one of us can let our gospel light shine in tangible ways. Each one of us can put those fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, into practice in our lives in tangible, meaningful ways with those around us. And each one of us can point to the source of those wonderful things. Each one of us can give a clear testimony in our lives to to our Jesus, who has lived a perfect life for you. He's taken your sin upon himself and suffered and paid for that on the cross, who, who rose victorious over death and defeated death for you and has promised you that your names are written in heaven. The doors of heaven are open to you and life eternal is yours. The underlying fact that supports all of this is that the God to whom you are testifying is a gracious, loving, merciful Savior God. A God who you know you can absolutely count on. A God who has used other humble servants of His in your life. Teachers, parents, grandparents, Sunday school teachers, youth group leaders, friends. To call you to faith, to keep you in that saving faith, encourage you in that saving faith. You know that whatever it is that that person needs that you're talking to, whether it's somebody who doesn't yet know Jesus or someone who's struggling in their faith, whether that need is salvation and forgiveness, whether it's peace, hope, meaning, purpose, you name it, you know the Lord's good for it. You need not fear that He's going to let you or them down. The cross of your Jesus is the guarantee that he cares. The empty tomb of your Jesus is the guarantee that he's got the power. The authority of your Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth, is your guarantee and your reason to speak up. Did you know that, perhaps you've heard this before, 85% of the people who come to church the first time come because a friend, a relative, a neighbor, acquaintance of some kind has invited them. Only 5% come because of the pastor. So we pastors try not to take the math personally, but it is what it is. In other words, you are 17 times more effective as an evangelist than pastor is. Now, does that mean that you know the Bible better than pastor? Does it mean that you are up to date on 21st century outreach methodology as well as pastor? Does it mean that you're wittier, clever, better looking, a better Christian apologist than your pastor? Some of you maybe. But what it means is that the Lord can and does use each one of us. What it means is that the best context 
in which to give a Christian witness is in the context of a relationship. And you have far more relationships, particularly with unchurched individuals, than pastor does. And even if pastor had the opportunity to talk to some of your unchurched acquaintances, they would, they'd be a bit skeptical. They've got their stereotypes about pastors. I mean, he's got ulterior motives. He's got to do it. I mean, it's his job. If he doesn't do it, he doesn't get paid. Right? But you, you got no ulterior motives. You, they, they, they already know you. They already trust you. They already respect you. And just like the Lord placed that servant girl in the life of Naaman for a reason, the Lord has placed you into the lives of those around you for a reason, for a spiritual reason, for a noble reason, for an eternal reason. So, you may not see yourself as a missionary. You may not be a, a publicly called missionary, evangelist, pastor, prophet, but you are a powerful tool in the hand of a mighty God for the spiritual healing, the spiritual welfare, the eternal salvation of others. In Jesus, you do have what it takes.